0: Today, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 28. Beautiful chapter that, upon first reading, seems to be an interruption to the book. Seems to be totally disconnected to where we are at this point. The three companions have debated through these 23 chapters with Job. He has held his ground. This is not an act of God's judgment on him as they persist in because of their view that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And if you're if you're experiencing tragedy, that's punishment. Ergo, you are guilty, Ergo, what is it you're hiding? Let's get that right and get you fixed. Not an uncommon way of thinking. And yet Job's life, his character. Not that Job is perfect morally, but Job is a righteous man. He's blameless because of his relationship with God. That truth is established in the very first verse of the book. And so everything they're arguing falls in the face of Job's contention. No, that's not what this is. God certainly may and will eventually judge the wicked. I get that. But this is not that. They've argued themselves into a stalemate, And then all of a sudden, we come to Job 28, and it's almost like somebody changed the channel. Let's read it and see if we can figure out why it's this part of the book. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore, in the blackest darkness "'Far from human dwellings they cut a shaft "'in places untouched by human feet. "'Far from other people they dangle and sway. "'The earth from which food comes "'is transformed below as by fire. "'Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks "'and its dust contains nuggets of gold. "'No bird of prey knows that hidden path. "'No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it "'and no lion prowls there.' People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all of its treasures. They dam up the rivers to bring the hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? And where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me the sea says it is not with me it cannot be bought with the finest gold nor can its price be weighed out in silver it cannot be bought with the gold of ophir neither gold nor crystal can compare with it nor can it be made for jewels of gold coral and jasper are not worthy of mention the price of wisdom is beyond rubies the topaz of cush cannot compare with it It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where, then, does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Even destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. But God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil... His understanding. This is the word of the Lord. So here is what I think is happening here. We are in what we would call an interlude. And the narrator freezes the scene, as depressing and hopeless as the debate seems right now, freezes the scene and walks out in the middle of the stage and says, all right, let's pause and look at where we are right now. Why talk about wisdom right now? Because it is so sorely lacking. I would argue that this chapter, and in fact the final verse of this chapter, to fear the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding, is the watershed of the whole book. Everything that has happened up until this point builds to that expression and shows how much we are lacking wisdom. Everything builds to this and then points to what's coming in the final act of the book. This hymn to wisdom actually has three stanzas, and the first two will fall under this category for us today, the search for wisdom. It begins with this 11-verse illustration that basically says people can do Amazing things. We are an amazing race. In our search for knowledge and wealth, look at all of the mastery that even then our race had achieved in geology, our understanding of precious metals and gems, in science and technology, tool making, smelting, civic engineering, mines, tunnels, shafts, scaffolding, agriculture, the earth from which food comes, our bent towards exploration, putting our feet in places that have never been touched by humans, headwaters of rivers. If this were being written in modern times, you might have some sentence in here that says, we can send a man to the moon, you fill in the rest. All this mastery sets us apart from all other creatures, the great beasts, the lions, the birds of prey, etc., and affirms our being created to be God's image bearers. Did not the Lord say in Genesis 128, fill the earth and subdue it? All of these things that mark the greatness of our race also reveal the image of God and results in the amassing of great wealth and knowledge. So this, first of all, is an acknowledgement of the greatness of the human race, something to be proud of. People can do amazing things. But then he goes on and says, but people can't find wisdom on their own. But where can wisdom be found, and where does understanding dwell? That's verse 12. With all of our ingenuity, with all of our ability, with all the knowledge we can amass and all the technology, that we can develop, it is out of our reach as a people to find wisdom and understanding without divine help. Now, the words wisdom and understanding are often combined in the Bible, aren't they? And there's a third word, knowledge, that's related to it as well. I wanna help you understand those different words because we can often confuse knowledge for wisdom. And we can often confuse understanding for wisdom. So three words to know. The first is the word knowledge. Knowledge is the acquiring of information and facts. Knowledge requires memory. Knowledge is the work of scholars and scientists. It's research. It's the accumulation of data, empirical, provable Truth, that's knowledge. Understanding, that's seeing meaning and principles in the knowledge. Understanding requires reason, not just memory. Understanding is the realm of teachers. Here are the principles behind what we know. But then there's wisdom. If knowledge is the acquiring of information and facts and understanding is seeing the meaning and principle in that knowledge, then wisdom is the right use and application of both the knowledge and the understanding. Wisdom requires application. It's the realm of leaders, counselors. It's the realm of practitioners and innovators. So let me frame that in a single statement. In short, knowledge asks what? Understanding asks why? And wisdom asks, so what? Now, what is being referred to here is a very particular form of wisdom that's godly, eternal wisdom. And so we're gonna define godly wisdom as the right use of knowledge and understanding in accordance with God's character and purpose. What we are talking about here is that level of wisdom that is able to take all that we've learned about life and uh, all that we understand as to why and how it works and the principles that we glean from that and bring it to bear on how we live our lives and how we go about Answering the big questions and pursuing the purposes and dreams of our life in a way that reflect and are consistent with who God is and what he wants to do in this world. That's godly wisdom. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Let's say that again. To know is not to be wise many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it there is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom from verse 12 through verse 19 we see that wisdom is the most precious of possessions but it can't be found in the land of the living in fact It's hidden in every living thing, verse 21 says. It can't be purchased with all of our wealth. It can't be found through all of our exploration and searching. Even facing death and destruction, we have just a glimpse or a rumor of it. Now, there's nothing that brings a little perspective on life than to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But... Job's author is saying that even that deepened perspective, that sense of wisdom that comes from facing destruction and death is merely a rumor of the real wisdom that comes from God. Where does wisdom come from? An honest look at our society reveals how badly we lack that wisdom today. We have a lot of knowing fools In positions of influence. Despite all the knowledge and expertise we continue to gain as a race, our technology and sciences advance while we continue in our prejudice and in our injustice and in our our conflict and in our wars. And the result is no matter what we learn, we still face fear, anger, and despair. We are quite like... The culture that Paul writes of in 1 Timothy 3.7 when he speaks of those that are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many are familiar with the description of society right now as being post-modern? It might be new to some of you. It's not to say that we are not modern. We continue to develop. But we are past the notion that science and exploration and gaining in knowledge will answer all of our deepest questions. In the 17th century, we began what we refer to as the scientific revolution. Gaining in knowledge through exploration and experimentation and repetition that we are still experiencing today. And what that led to in the early 18th century was what we refer to as the age of reason or the Enlightenment based on the idea that through scientific process and through logic and reason, we will outgrow the superstitious past that was rooted in religion, and we will achieve as a race a whole new level of living and accomplishment. So think about this. I listed knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge is the acquiring of information and facts. That's the scientific revolution. Understanding is the reasoning out of the meaning and principles of that knowledge. That's the age of enlightenment. And what that yielded in the early 19th century to is secular humanism. That belief that we are essentially good people and all we need is enough information and enough understanding And we will become a utopia. Let me just ask a simple question. How is that working for you? (laughs) It's amazing how you will hear people in influence still holding on to that notion that people are essentially good. All we need to do is to keep educating people. We're like gerbils on a spinning wheel. We can't get off of it because we don't have the wisdom to say, this isn't the path. And so we're stuck there we are confusing knowledge and reason for true wisdom. The world today is the result of people thinking if we know enough and we understand enough, we can have a society that's good enough. And instead, the result is clear. I wanna quote uh, H.G. Wells to you. H.G. Wells is known by many people as a great science fiction writer. But H.G. Wells was also a historian, a professor, and a scientist. I'm going to read two quotes for you. The first is from 1937 in his book, A Short History of the World, where he espouses a secular humanist philosophy that because we're essentially good, there's nothing that we can't achieve. And he writes this, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of this present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. As We came out of World War I as the League of Nations called for world peace and people began to get back to the pursuit of knowledge and industry. That's what he saw. This is what he wrote in 1946. History buffs. What transpired between 1937 and 1946? World War II. Name some of the evils and atrocities of World War II. The Holocaust, the atom bomb the imprisonment of Asian Americans. I mean, just think about all the things that were revealed when the security of our race, the the real parts of human nature that came out. Here's what H.G. Wells wrote in 1946. This is from an article he wrote called A Mind at the End of Its Tether. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless The return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Now, that's where you're left if you make it all about us we will never achieve the true wisdom that brings meaning and moves us forward into the life that God had planned. And that's why he goes on, and in verse 20, asks the question again, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Why don't we just read verse 23 to 28 again? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens, When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So the things that we learn from this just quickly, God alone knows how and where true wisdom can be found. God not only created all things, but has full knowledge of his creation, past, present, and future. This is a very important principle for us to understand. God sees everything that is now from the very beginning of time to the end of time. So talk about knowledge. (laughs) That's knowledge. And all that we will ever learn, even with our great ability and capacity to learn, will only put a fingernail scratch in the wealth that is the knowledge of God. And so here's the thing. When we face issues like Job is facing, what we want is to dip into some of that knowledge. We want God to open up that wealth of knowledge to us and let us just step into it a little bit so that we have a perspective of why we're going through these things. It appears God has no intention of letting Job get a glimpse of that. So here's the thing I want you to understand. Gaining wisdom is not found in having access to those things that God knows that you and I don't know. If and when God chooses to reveal his plan to you, count it as a blessing. Count it as perspective. But don't count on it. Because God sees and knows more than we could possibly. What would happen to the human mind if God opened up all that he knows and said, jump in? That's why he says, your ways are not my ways. As, as high as the heavens are above the earth are my thoughts above yours. My ways higher than yours. But that's what we want. We want to step into God's knowledge and it would destroy us. But what we do know is that God has all that knowledge hold on to that that's really important so what we see is that God alone knows how and where truth and wisdom come from God not only created all things but he has full knowledge of all of his creation past present and future wisdom was established and confirmed by God at the dawn of creation So in other words, whatever this godly wisdom is, God put it in place when he laid the foundations of the world and all of creation. Wisdom was meant to be an undergirding for the human experience. And when we fell from God, we lost access to that wisdom. And so consequently, what are we left with? Enlightenment. There's no eternal, there's no godly wisdom in it. And that's why he goes on, And says, and let's say this together. And God said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. And this is the glimpse, this is the little tease of where we're heading together. You will never be God. Adam and Eve sinned because they thought they could be God. What was it that attracted them to the tree of the, what was it called? Stop right there. The knowledge of good and evil. And that knowledge without godly wisdom ruined them and continues to ruin us today. So here's the glimpse, God knows all things. So how do we touch, grow into wisdom? It's our response to that God who has all the knowledge and to Christ who is the embodied, complete revelation and knowledge of God to us today. It's our response to that and it's the fear of the Lord. Now this is really important. This is not being afraid of the Lord. That's what Job's friends live with right now. Job's friends are afraid of God. This is a God of justice who will give you what you deserve so you better watch out. They're afraid of God. That's not what Job is speaking of. The fear of the Lord, that word in Hebrew is reverential awe. Put it up on screen. To fear the Lord is to have a reverential awe of God that leads to three things, adoration, submission to him, and surrender. And if you really want to find the source of wisdom that makes sense of life, not only in its joys, but in its deepest sorrows, not only in your successes, which you want to take credit for, but also in the great disasters, which you want to blame God for, This is where it starts. It starts in that knowledge of God. And the idea of shunning evil leads to true understanding. You see, that's the problem with our society. Enlightenment and humanism refuses to deal with where evil really dwells. Humanism acts like evil just showed up someplace and the human world is victims of it that we just have to be taught better. It's the denial of the real nature of evil that results in not fearing God. It's an honesty. It's a shunning of the evil that has left us broken and in rebellion to God. And that's not only the path to wisdom, that's the path to redemption. Because that's what Scripture teaches us. We have to come to the terms that all have sinned. I personally... I'm the source of evil in this world. It's my human nature. That's why H.G. Wells reached a point when he saw the evil of men that everything he had hung his hopes on in terms of the future left him in despair, but we don't need to be in despair. We just need to be humble enough to recognize the brokenness is here. Now, I want to point something out. Go back to verse 28. So, we're 28 chapters in. This is the peak of the book, right here. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. But the author has just tied. The preceding twenty-seven together, he's just pulled a string that we didn't know was there, and the whole story is just lined up because the very first verse says this of Job. Say it with me: There was a man named Job. What did he do? Praise God. Ha. <laughs> So even Job doesn't see it yet, but he's already surviving because he already is in touch with God's wisdom. And that's beautiful. You see, when you let go of the idea that knowing is wisdom, and you walk with God, you're already experiencing the wisdom of God. I love that thought, don't you? We need to develop once again that reverential awe of a God who still offers us life, who still offers us the wisdom of the ages, if we're willing to adore him, submit to him, surrender to him. And this is really just the beginning of this subject, but isn't it enough to let you know there's a path that's true in this, that with all that we've been frustrated by coming into Job, we're going to see some hope. Thank God he doesn't open up the wealth of his knowledge to us. Oh, my goodness. Who would survive? And so he stands and says, look at me. Be in awe of me and know that I know things from the beginning to the end. Trust me. Walk with me. And find wisdom. Wisdom. Father, that's what we're in search of today. We want to make sense of life. We want to make sense of the hard times. and You call us to trust you. Hard. It's hard, Father. But we ask that you would increase our trust. We hear the words of James who said, if any person lacks wisdom, let them ask of God who gives to all generously. And that's what we ask, Lord. We ask that you give us wisdom generously, but we understand that what that means is that you open up our eyes to who you are. That you deepen our sense of awe and wonder and reverence and surrender to you because that's the path to the wisdom we so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen.